The new year is the perfect time to start building credit scores. Because when your credit scores increase, your opportunities do too. Like loan approvals and lower interest rates. Chime makes it easier to keep building your credit with a secured Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. You can use Credit Builder everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. Chime helps you build your credit score safely by using your own money to make everyday purchases and on-time payments. To apply, just open a Chime checking account with a $200 qualifying direct deposit. And don't stress, there's no annual fee or credit check required to apply and get started. Start building your credit history and finding new opportunities with the secured Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Late payment may negatively impact your credit score. Results may vary. of the Buffalo Happy Hour. We are here. Mike is not here today. It's just me. We are here in the Addie's Tasting Room with a new friend. Uh, we'll get to introductions in a second. Just want to thank Addie's again for hosting us, letting us use the tasting room for another interview. We have a really exciting one today. Uh, we have a representative from uh, MGP who is going to be talking about their process, and then we're going to be tasting some great juice that he brought. So uh, you want to do a little bit of an introduction, and we'll go from there. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. I'm Ian Sturzman. I'm the master distiller of MGP's Ross and Squibb Distillery. So people hear us talk about it all the time, like MGP as a whole. Can you kind of explain a little bit what MGP is? Yeah, I'm at M- I mean, MGP is a lot right now. So we, we do a lot of contract distilling. So we make the whiskeys, especially the rye whiskeys, uh, GNS, gin, that go into a lot of different brands. We also have some food ingredient business, but that's not really oh, okay. what we're here to talk about. And uh, MGP started in Atchison, Kansas, and they started with a, a large distillery making GNS and gin, uh, contract distillation mostly. And then in 2011, they purchased our distillery, and that's when they really got into making the whiskeys, the bourbons, rye whiskeys. Did you, so Ross and Squibb, what, what's the origin of that? Cause that goes before MGP acquired you, obviously. So did you make primarily rise before then? So our, uh, our history. So we were MGP of Indiana after 2011 mm-hmm. when MGP purchased us. And then we acquired Luxco a couple years ago. And with that, there came a uh, you know, a few more distilleries, the Limestone Branch Distillery, where Yellowstone Bourbon's made, mm. the Lux Row Distillery, where Ezra and Rebel are made, and then Distillador Gonzalez, uh, where we make some of our tequilas like El Mayor. And with that, we also wanted to focus more on our own brands coming from the mm-hmm. Lawrenceburg Distillery. So we wanted to give the Lawrenceburg Distillery a name that meant a little more uh, than MGP of Indiana and that really paid tribute to the history we have there at the distillery because the distillery has been around since 1847. Okay. So we're one of the oldest, uh, you know, we have as much history as pretty much any distillery out there in the U S at least. So, so when MGP like approached the distillery, like the standing distillery that's been around for a while, what was that discussion like? Do you know? That was before my time. So I, I don't really know, but it was, um, you know, it was really good timing for them um, because in 2011, we were kind of getting out of a bourbon glut. 
Sure. And and whiskey was really, you know, American bourbon was really just starting to take off. Rye whiskey was really just starting to take mm-hmm. off. So um, I don't know how those conversations went. I wasn't part of them, but uh, it was good timing for them. It had to be fascinating, though, because, I mean, so MGP itself, you talked about contract distillation. How much of it is kind of out there in the world? You don't have to give, like, actual um, – like distillery names or brand names out there, but like how much does MGP actually contract out? It's a lot. We don't, we don't talk uh, specific volumes, sure. just we're, we're publicly traded and we've never made that information public. Oh, okay. Um, so we can't talk specific volumes, but you know, you go to a store like where we're at right now and uh, you look around the shelves and turn bottles around, start looking distilled in Indiana is going to be on, on a, pretty big portion of those bottles. So that's how you can kind of tell if, if you're going to a liquor store, you turn it around and it says Indiana, it's probably mostly MGP. M- yeah, mostly. I mean, there's a, there's a, we have a couple kind of new smaller distilleries in Indiana that are great too, but, uh, but yeah, 90% of 95% of everything that says sure. distilled in Indiana on the back is, is probably going to come from us. I love it. So the Ross and Squibb name, is that the original owners of the distillery? So it's actually the first two distilleries that okay. sit on our site. So the Rossville Union Distillery started all the way back in 1847. And that distillery, um, you know, would go operate through Prohibition. But then after Prohibition, uh, they were actually starting back up and burnt down. Hmm. Um, so at that time, the Seagram's company came in out of Canada, bought the property and rebuilt the distillery in the 30s. And that's still the distillery we're using to do the bulk of our distillation now. Oh, cool. Um, now, the Seagram's, I don't know if you're familiar with the Seagram story, but like the third generation Bronfman um, wanted to get into movie pictures and bought Universal, uh, kind of sold off the Seagram's assets. So in 2002, we got sold to Pernod Ricard, and we were a part of Pernod from 2002 to 2008. Is that a watch brand? Pernod? Yeah. Uh, no, Pernod's like the, the second biggest spirits company in the world. What's that watch brand that started uh, with a P? Peugeot. Peugeot? Yeah, I thought there's another one. But okay, so it's the second. Okay, I got yeah. you. Yeah, Pernod Ricard. Pernod Ricard. Yeah, Pernod okay, yeah. um, Sorry, I threw a little no, wrench there. No, you're fine. No. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we were Pernod until 2008. In 2008, we were purchased by a holding company out of the Caribbean, and we operated under the moniker LDI, Lawrenceburg Distillers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just from 2008 to 2011. And 2011, MGP purchased the distillery. And MGP purchased it really to make, um, you know, they had already were in the contract distillation world, uh, but they weren't into the brown goods, whiskeys mm-hmm. and sure. rice. So, so we started getting into contract distillation of whiskeys. Um, a few years in, I guess about probably about eight, nine years ago, uh, we purchased a very small brand in Cincinnati that was the Remus bourbon brand. And they were already uh, purchasing our bourbon mm. for their brand. Uh, but we we purchased uh, the brand as our own about 10 years ago. And we started off really small, just kind of organically growing. We were only in a few states. And we also then started the Rossville Union Rye Whiskey brand shortly after that. Again, small organic growth. And then when we acquired Luxco a couple of years ago, all of a sudden we have distribution in almost every state, really uh, kind of refocused on our own brands. And then, I'm sorry, I totally skipped over the squib part yeah. of the d- distillery. So that squib part uh, started in 1869. And that distillery was actually owned by George Remus during Prohibition, continued to operate during Prohibition, was owned by George Remus. And then 
after Prohibition, the Shenley Company bought it. So I don't know if you've ever heard of the Old Quaker brand. Uh, it's an old brand of whiskey, but it was the Old Quaker distillery for Shenley up until uh, the 1980s when it shut down. And then we purchased that property in the 2010s, and we use those old Shenley rickhouses now for maturation. So it's all one continuous property, but but originally it was two different distilleries. How big is the property, like acreage-wise, do you know? It's about a mile, a okay. little over a mile from north to south. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. There's just so much good juice that comes out of this these two distilleries that it's pretty sweet to see. So when you're – so we have a lot of these brands in front of us, Remus and Rossville – when you're trying to take some stuff for your own, mm-hmm. what is that process like? Like, do some companies have more seniority and say, "I want this bottle," but you actually kind of want to or barrel, and then you actually kind of want to keep some stuff for yourself? Like, how does that work? So we sell whiskey in a lot of different ways. So, um, so some companies will buy new make from us. Mm-hmm. So when we say new make, what they do is they'll purchase a contract and will lay down that whiskey for them. So it's theirs the day it's made. And we barrel it, we put it in our rickhouses, you know, they're going to pay storage fees to keep it in our rickhouses, and then whenever they're ready to dump that whiskey, we'll dump it for them. Mm. Um, But then we also lay down a lot of whiskey for, we call it MGP put-away. So that's going to be sold, um, you know, to customers at a later date. You know, we're going to age that, to uh, increase the value of it and sell it as aged whiskey. So, um, and then we put away stuff for our own brands. And then that, you know, that's kind of a, a one pool, right? Mm-hmm. That that whiskey for us. So then we can kind of decide from there, you know, what are we going to sell and what are we going to put into our own brands? Gotcha. So when they reach out to you, if they did want you to distill it for them, mm-hmm. do they tell you a specific mash bill or do you have mash bills that you consistently make that then goes to them? It really depends on the customer. Sure. You know, we do a lot of different mash bills at the distillery. Um, you know, for a distillery our size, we probably do more different things than anyone else. Mm. Um, you know, typical, there's only a few distilleries our size. Typically, they're going to make, you know, anywhere between one and four different mash bills. You know, we're doing, you know, sometimes up to 30 different mash bills oh in a year. Um, we do light whiskey. We do a ton of rye whiskey. We do, uh, you know, gin. GNS, we do a lot of different things. So it's very complex at the distillery. And um, yeah, it's it's kind of managed on a customer by customer basis, you know, how that relationship works and what they're what they're purchasing, you know, what we're doing for them. How how big so like we know distance wise how large the distillery is, but like do you know how much like equipment is inside? Like how many barrels are we talking? So we we don't say how many barrels specifically we have an in inventory sure. i think what we officially say is we're one of the top five whiskey producers in the country so. that's crazy do you so where do you get all this grain from if you're going to be i don't know if you can get into that detail either but like with yeah. how much you guys are producing you have to have multiple sources because the amount of grain that you're consuming has to be so much yeah and we source our grains from different areas and we're we're pretty picky about what we bring in um, most of our rye will come from Germany and Sweden. So it comes oh. from Europe and we'll get pre-shipment samples. We'll select, uh, what grain we want to come over, we'll come over on a big ocean going vessel into new Orleans. And then they'll send us pre-shipment samples of barges and we'll select the holds out of that ship that we want and sure. they'll get barged up to Louisville, then trucked to the distillery. 
Um, for corn, we mostly source locally, uh, you know, within a couple hundred miles of the distillery. All right. I'm sure that makes it easier that you're not shipping the corn because, I mean, mm-hmm. you, but you do have rye too, and all the rye coming from overseas? Not all of it. Okay. Um, we've done a lot of experimentation with different rye over the last few years. So we've done on, we've done some North American rye, um, but the bulk of our rye comes from Europe. Is there an area, <clears throat> because with within the United States and obviously within Europe, you have all these different climates that have rye grow differently. Mm-hmm. Is there a certain region that you prefer in the distillation process as opposed to others? Like New York rye is one of the big ones that is kind of taken off right now with that Empire rye movement. But have you tried New York rye or is there any other rye that would work better in your mash? We have tried different ryes and for us, we can't match our flavor profile with anything we've tried from North America. Okay. But we don't always have to match that flavor profile, right? The there are other ryes... You know, are, are different and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the bulk of our distillation, we'll probably stick with that, the European rye, uh, just because that's the flavor profile that we're really going for, sure. for the bulk of what we do. But um, but we play around with other things, you know, for one-offs and experimentation. We actually do a ton of experimentation into, like, the rye grain itself. Mm-hmm. So we kind of started with identifying what compounds are responsible for the flavors you think of when you think of a rye whiskey, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, what makes that that cinnamon and the clove and the baking spice? And then we trace those compounds back to their precursors in the grain. And, and then we started looking at, you know, methodology to test for those precursors in the grain. And we started looking at different varieties, what varieties are high in those compounds that we're looking for. And that's kind of helped guide us to sourcing different ryes sure. and experimentation. Um, and then we also looked at, you know, what can we do in the distillery to uh, really bring out those flavors to, to convert those precursors to those flavor compounds we're looking for. Do you have like an internal science lab or something like that? Like where you're, where you're doing all this like chemical tracing? Because I think when you talk about whiskey, there's, there's so many people of the population that have no idea of the back end process that goes into making it. Like you just think that you have these cereal grains that can make a, a brown spirit after being put in a barrel and that's it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, hearing you talk about the flavor profile that you're looking for in your rye whiskey is mostly coming from Europe. Like talk us through how you even go about that. And first of all, what is the flavor profile that you're looking at? If you can kind of tease it to somebody that's never had your whiskey before and then also, like, what is that process of actually figuring it out? Because that's fascinating. So, yeah, we, we do have a, a large lab. We have a whole staff in our lab. But we also work with universities, too, mm, some sure. uh, to help with our research. Um, and then we have a whole team of engineers. You know, uh, I'm a chemical engineer myself. Hmm. Um, and we have a team of probably six, seven engineers um, just always working on that kind of thing. And sorry, what was the what was the full question? Like your if no if someone hasn't had your products before or MGP or maybe they don't even know they're drinking MGP like we were mm-hmm. saying, it just it's not right there on the label. How would you classify your rye taste? You said clove and a little bit like that, but how would you cr- classify your rye normally taste that you're looking for? So the the taste that I'm looking for in our rye is you know that baking spice, the clove, cinnamon, mm-hmm. kind of those traditional rye 
flavors. And then also our rye has kind of a unique mint note and mm. a lot of people get a dill note. So like my favorite ryes from the distillery are the ones that are really heavy in that mint and dill, sure. but also have that traditional rye flavors as well. Is it your favorite because you don't normally get that note from somewhere else? I think it's my favorite just because that's what I like. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It is. I do think it's a little bit unique to sure. our distillery. I've, I have had um, some rye not made at our distillery that have been pretty minty. Mm. Um, but that dill note, I've never really found in a rye elsewhere i gotta start searching for it because now if we if we try a rye here and i'm gonna like be thinking about it it's gonna be like you know as soon as you start telling people what you taste it's like oh yeah i taste that too but i'm gonna have to try to see if if you can pick that up because that's i don't know if i've tasted a dill in a in a rye whiskey before yeah i i didn't bring any uh of our ryes yeah. that are really heavy in that mint and dill note um kind of brought more of our bourbons mm-hmm. for today but yeah. uh, i could definitely tell you where to go to to find that yeah direct me in that mm-hmm. so let's let's talk about some of the stuff here so the the remus brand and the ross brand they haven't always been around or have they no so uh the remus brand we started about eight nine years ago uh we actually we purchased it about eight nine mm-hmm. years ago and then the rossville uh union rye brand came maybe two or three years after that so you per so just to recap you purchased the remus brand but the Remus brand was already using your juice anyway, right? Yes, that's correct. And it was real small, kind of local Cincinnati brand. Sure. Mm-hmm. So it was that that had to have been an easy transition then, because then you're not only like having that brand consistency, you're not changing the juice drastically, right? Like, did you just use that same stuff that you've always been providing them to continue the brand going forward? No, I, I would say there was a, a pretty big oh, yeah? step up in quality when we sure. when we started filling those bottles. <laughs> Interesting. So can we can we go through some of these? What's the first one that you have? Or is there one that you want to start with? Um, yeah, we can start with our our everyday bourbon. Okay. So this is our ninety four proof Remus. It's a blend between two kind of historic mash bills we've been doing at the distillery since the 1930s, uh, and that's our LESV and our LBSV. So that's our 21% rye bourbon and our 36% rye bourbon. So it's 75% corn, 21% rye, 4% malted barley, and 60% corn, 36% rye, uh, 4% malted barley. And we've been doing these mash bills at the distillery for a really long time. Um, The barrels I picked for this are going to be five and six years, Mm -hmm. and it's at 94 proof. It's a little more, you know, obviously it's very rye forward, you know, much higher rye content Mm -hmm. that you're going to find in some of the traditional Kentucky bourbons. And it's just a little more floral, a little more spicy, not quite as sweet vanilla caramel as like a traditional Kentucky bourbon. And we're in a pretty unique position right now um, because our brands are pretty small, but we're a very large distillery and we have a lot of barrels. So we can be extremely selective in what barrels we're putting into our own brands. Do you do a lot of small batch stuff, like in general to distillery? Because I feel like when you start getting into small batch and you you have the ability to introduce a little bit more or less consistency within each batch. Mm-hmm. So is there do you have a set number of barrels that you normally use for the brand, or is it just whatever fits that flavor? Um, it's whatever fits that flavor. Sure. Like we're not trying, we're, we're hitting a flavor profile with our 94 proof. It's going to be, you know, hopefully the mm-hmm. same experience every time you go buy that sure. bottle. Um, but we do do small, pretty small batches. Um, 
in terms of, of all these products. Um, you know, with our Rossville, uh, the last bottling of our kind of mainline Rossville rye was about 82 bottles mm. or 82 barrels. Sorry. So, so they're fairly small batches. Yes. That's awesome. You want to try some? Yeah. Or can I try some? Yeah, absolutely. So this is that 94 proof Remus. Start with that. Awesome. Of course he does. <laughs> so five and six here, you said, right? Mm-hmm. Five and six. So when you're, when it comes, when you're taking it out of the barrel for your whisk, for your bourbon, what are you looking for to, to see if it's ready? Like, why did you choose five and six here? Um, I mean, really just, you know, every barrel is going to be different in terms of, of when you're going to pull it. So we look at barrels that are kind of have matured, or we would say they've matured pretty early for five and six year, uh, for the Remus 94. And then those barrels that we see that we think are going to continue to get better as they mature, uh, we'll, we'll hold on to for some of our allocated releases sure. with like the repeal and the Gatsby. Um, so actually like it's, it's pretty easy. Like I work with our master blender and I, I say it's easy, but I lean on him pretty heavily. <laughs> um, it's pretty easy. Like the, the five and six year and then the repeal is, is extremely easy. Uh, to blend, it's actually those those higher ages that are really difficult because mm. it's hard to to watch these barrels as they age and and pick the right ones to keep and hold on to to some of those higher age sure. statement bourbons. Yeah. What is the highest age statement that you have? It's it's our Gatsby Reserve. The, this one here, so 15? it's a fifteen. Yeah. Yeah, because that's got to be tough. Like this tastes so good now, but do I want to wait mm-hmm. and keep it yeah. for another nine years? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, cheers, man. Yeah. Thank you. And usually like the ones that are going to go into this maybe weren't that great at five and six years old, Mm. you know, um, usually like the barrel that's going to be best at 15 usually wasn't the best at five or six. Right. That's really good. It's very sweet and it tingles the sides of your tongue. Yeah, thank you. We, um, yeah, like I said, we can be really picky with what we're putting into this just because of our, how many barrels we have yeah. versus the size of our brands. You know, they're still it, it's very in their caramely. Infancy. Yeah, it's. I would say it, to me, it's a little less caramely than some of the Kentucky bourbons. Um, just a little more floral, but but it definitely has that caramel mm-hmm. in it still. I mean, it's still you know a lot of corn in those. So do you take influence from when you say floral and MGP kind of having that gin background, do you take some of the influence from there to try to figure out if there's a floral note that resonates well with the gin that's been produced and try to get that replicated in whiskey at all or no? No, not really. Yeah. We're, uh, it's usually it's pretty different notes mm-hmm. in the gin and yeah. the, in the whiskeys. Um, you know, we do do sensory on everything we make. So like every morning, kind of the first thing I do is I go into the distillery, uh, all, we'll have our morning meeting, kind of talk about the goals for the day. But after that, the next thing I do is go to our sensory lab and we'll have all the distillates that we made from the previous day. 
on a table. Um, a lot of them will just have lettered and then we'll have to pick out, you know, what, what we made, uh, in those distillates versus the standard of kind of like, what is that, that standard that we're trying to hit? So we do that with, with our gins, with our whiskeys, with, even with the GNS. And so we, I think that probably helps us be a little more well-rounded mm-hmm. um, just because we are constantly looking at, at all those flavor profiles from all the different spirits uh, when we're blending. But um, it's not something that I've ever really consciously thought sure. about. <laughs> this really doesn't taste like a 90, 94 proof at all. Like this goes down so much. Like you get, when I associate a, a, a higher proof, I mean, this is still 94, so we're not talking like super high proof at all, but Normally, I start feeling it like in the middle of my chest, and mm-hmm. here I just—it really—it's only like tingling the sides of my tongue. Like this is very, very well made to where I don't feel bad drinking more of it. I guess if that makes sense. But like that ninety-four proof goes down very, very light. Well, thank you. That's uh, that's what we're we're going for. We're trying to impress. So I appreciate that. The label behind it, one of the things that we do for um, our weekly whiskey reviews is we look at label branding and try to figure out, does it stand out on the shelf? What's the bottle like? What's the cork like? Is it a real cork? Is it a synthetic cork? When designing the bottle of the Remus brand, is that consistent from when it was previously, the other, um, before you acquired it? No, it's it's changed a few times. Sure. Um, so it was different before we acquired it. When we acquired it, we changed the packaging again. And then we actually just recently uh, overhauled all of our packaging once more. So so this bottle here is, is fairly new. Um, the old bottle actually had a George Remus's face on it, like his kind of silhouette with a hat on. Nice. Um, so this, we kind of changed it to look more art deco mm-hmm. to kind of match the the packaging of the Gatsby and the repeal. The Gatsby and the repeal have just gotten a, a ton of good pub publicity and sure. uh, attention over the last couple of years. So we really wanted to make that connection a little tighter. The Gatsby kind of looks, and we'll talk about it, but the Gatsby kind of looks like cognac, cognac vibes to it. Yeah. It's, with a, it's, a, it's a fancy bottle. It's a, we wanted to really play on that art deco look with sure. the bottle and uh, yeah. I think our marketing team did a pretty great job with that. So you personally, I know that this is probably going to open up a can of worms, but what is your favorite type of whiskey? Are you a rye guy? Are you a bourbon guy? And like of your mash bills that you create, what do you normally tend to go to when you go to a store and you pick something off the shelf? So I'm a rye whiskey person, like very wholeheartedly. I love bourbon, but rye whiskey is, is my first love and will always be my love. Um, and when I go home, you know, after working at the distillery all day, I'm, I'm usually reaching for our rye whiskey. What, how many different blends of, or uh, mash bills of rye whiskey do you guys make? Ooh, um, I mean, really there's, there's two main ones. So the two main ones are 95% rye, 5% malted barley. That's probably the mash bill our distillery is most famous mm-hmm. for. Um, and that would be the, the predominant mash bill we make as far as rye whiskey goes. Uh, we also do our 51% cor- or 51% rye, uh, 45% corn, 4% malted barley, uh, which is a little bit more of a bourbon drinker's mm-hmm. rye, a little sweeter with that corn. And we do a pretty fair amount of that as well. But then we've, over the years, have done, you know, probably dozens of other kind of one-offs or, or maybe just very small volumes. I've always been curious too because you see a lot of the like 955 you see 51 49 or 46 or sometimes 49 what 
is there a combination that doesn't work in your opinion? Like 75 rye and like, is there a, a percentage between 51 and 95 that just doesn't work for you? No, I don't no. think so. I haven't like found that, uh, yeah, each one's just going to be different. Sure. Um, but I, I mean, I really enjoy our 95, five. Uh, we actually, uh, one of the ones I brought for you to taste today is actually a, a different mash bill. It's 51 rye, 49 barley malt. Mm. And that's a, a totally different experience than any of our other ryes. The, that one is bottled and bonded, and I guess we'll kind of transition to that one. What is what is that process like to have it bottled and bond? I think that you're the, it might be the first distillery that we've interviewed that has, makes their own stuff that is bottled and bond. So mm-hmm. what is... Is all this whiskey technically bottled and bond if it's been four years in 100 proof? No, because um, a lot of, like, this is five and six-year-old. This is nine, 10, and 16-year-old. Um, so there are different vintages. Mm-hmm. Uh, with bottled and bond, it has to be distilled in the same season. So the oh, barrels right. have to be distilled in the same season, yeah. So the whole rickhouse or warehouse, though, is bonded, right? Like, you're not making a certain area of the rickhouse bonded? No, it, uh all the brick houses are bonded. Okay. Um, and basically that's just, so you don't pay the excise tax up front when you're aging it. You'll pay that excise tax, you know, later when it's bottled and at retail. Sure. Mm-hmm. So the, anything that we didn't cover in that straight bourbon whiskey that you want to get out, I mean, that's, it's a gorgeous bottle. Can you find that at Addie's? Um, yeah, they're bringing it in here. Uh, so they're bringing it in this month. Yeah. I don't know when you're going to air okay. this. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, that, that's fine. So <laughs> when this comes out, you should it should be here. Okay. Do you roundabout know what price it's going to be released for at all? Um, 40 bucks. 40 bucks? Wow. What? Yeah. Great price for that. Yeah. Thanks. The so when you're when you're looking at prices, we always say that kind of that 50 buck $50 mark is when you start competing with a lot of higher end whiskeys mm-hmm. and coming in at 40 bucks. I mean, that's a steal for this product. What, what was, I mean, <clears throat> I, this is probably one of your more entry level products. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah. Okay. This would be our entry level bourbon. And that's the one that's probably most available, even not in New York state. Like, do you have an area on a website or something where somebody can look up and see if that's available in a liquor store near them? Yeah, we actually do. Um, so we, if you just go to our website, Remus bourbon, um, there's a, a store locator on okay. there that can help you out. Cool. You want to go to the the uh, the raw stuff? I, yeah. I mean, you're, let's. Uh, we can grab a, a dump bucket too if you want. Well, I don't know if you want to dump it. I, I don't know if that's like <laughs> sacrilegious or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> I I'm really excited to try this, Brian, because I I've always thought about the the prospect of MGP having their own or branches of MGP having their own product and just being an outsider looking in it always thought like my first thought was is there going to be conflict like because you have MGP making stuff for other brands and is there going to be ever any conflict between different brands and you wanting to make your own stuff obviously that's clearly not happening right have you had any pushback from any brands at all no I don't think so I mean you know the industry is still you know, rising and, mm. and everybody in this industry is just super friendly. Like there's no real, there's no like cutthroat competition in sure. this industry. You know, we, we go do events together. I see, you know, people from other distilleries all the time. You know, 
I have friends um, that used to I used to work with at MGP that have moved on to other distilleries, and you know we. If I'm going to be in town, I call them up. They'll invite me to go come to the distillery and hang out. And, you know, everybody everybody in this industry is in it together. Sure. That's awesome. All right. You want to try this one? Yeah. So this is a, a pretty new product. So really brand new product. And it's um, our six-year bottled and bond Rossville Union. So it's 51% rye, 49% malted barley. And it's very different than any of the other rye mash pills we do because of that. So no corn in here at all. It's 51 and 49 malted barley. Yeah. And the reason we kind of originally did this mash bill is because I was telling you a little bit earlier about, you know, we were looking at how do we extract those flavor components in the rye that are the precursors Mm -hmm. for, or the, the chemicals in the rye that are the precursors for those flavor components we're looking for in the rye whiskey. And one of the things we found is that a lot of them are bound up in complexes in the rye that are really hard to break down. And the best way to break those complexes down and free those compounds into solution so that the yeast can metabolize them into those flavor compounds you're looking for is to hit them with a lot of endogenous enzymes from a malted grain, like sure. malted barley. So, so it's very malted barley forward on the nose. Uh, you get a lot of that like grass and chocolate from the malted barley on the nose, but then that rye flavor really, really dominates on the palate because of that. It's it's just got to be so fun to tinker with some of this stuff. Being such a large distillery that you guys are, I'm sure that there was countless research that went into this fun research i might say but like there has to have been so much research to figure out what percentage of that enzyme because i mean you can't just you have malted barley and then you have malted rye was there ever any consideration of bringing that malted rye into a rye whiskey at all uh we we've considered that we've uh we played around with that a little bit but for this mash bill we went with the malted barley Ooh, that's kind of a, a unique taste, and but that is a very unique mash bill, right? Like there, yeah. I don't know if I've ever heard of a fifty-one forty-nine malted barley because normally you get some of that corn in there. Which to me, like I'm, I'm with you. Corn is or rye whiskey is my favorite. I'm actually more of a single malt guy myself, but like rye whiskey if, in the America side is definitely my favorite because the the corn for me, I feel like sometimes can take away from some of that amazing taste from the flavoring grain, like a rye, like a a really well flavored rye whiskey is just amazing to me. And having 51% rye and not introducing that corn is fantastic. Yeah. I I like this a lot. Um, I'm with you where rye can, to me can just be so much more complex Mm -hmm. than corn. And, and what we found too, is that every different variety of rye, produces a totally different rye whiskey where we, you know, we've done a lot with different varietals of corn and um, you know, some people might not agree with me, but corn is kind of corn to me. You know, like we've tried, we've played around with different varieties of corn and, and sometimes they're fun, but mm. you know, we did stuff with blue corn and all of our fermenters were purple and that was fun. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, to me from a flavor profile, corn is kind of corn. I'm so happy that you said that. Because, I mean, when you talk about MGP and you talk about whiskey and bourbon, there's a lot of that goes into corn. And hearing you say that it's, it's corn, 
it's kind of refreshing from for me to hear from someone like you that like rye whiskey is very complex. Have you done anything with any malt like uh, single malt at all? Um, we we've experimented. Um, you know, I don't know when those things might come to the market, mm. but um, yeah, we've experimented with some. Nice, yeah. love to hear that. Mm-hmm. So this is six year. This is bottled in bond. Um, we talked a little bit about it, but can you go into the requirements from a distillation standpoint? What constitutes a bottled in bond product? Yeah, it's just the, your typical, from a distillation standpoint, it's just going to be distilled like a bourbon, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, below 160 proof, uh, barreled no more than 125, um, or below 125. And then, you know, it has to be at least four years old, um, no additives, which is kind of bourbon anyway, mm-hmm. or is bourbon anyway, uh, and then bottled at 100 proof. So it really was created and then stored in bonded warehouse. Sure. So. It was really created because, you know, back in the day when the Bottom Bond Act happened, there was just a lot of adulteration of whiskey. So it was really just um, a label you could put on there to show that it was pure whiskey, unadulterated, sure. you know, had spent its good time in the barrel and and came from, you know, one distiller, one distillery. Sure. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, I that 100 proof going up from that 94, you're still getting such a good burn in your mouth but it doesn't travel is and sometimes distillers plan for that travel like they want it to hug down here they want it mm-hmm. to you to feel it in your stomach from your perspective is that ever a, a experience you're trying to get people to experience is getting that deeper burn or do you always want it to kind of stay within like a higher hug no um i think that that finish and that burn is going to be different for each of our products okay and you know that when we're blending that's a huge consideration i mean you know i mean it's aroma palette finish mm-hmm. right you know we're we're looking at every aspect of that experience when we're blending sure. um but this with that that malted barley like you know the malted the enzymes in the malted barley bring out that rye flavor but it the it also softens up that rye spice just a little bit right 100%. like the, it softens it up a little bit and it's not not quite as deep of a burn as you're going to get in some of our other Rossville whiskeys, like our Barrel Proof, which is predominantly the 95% rye, 5% malted barley mash bill. I feel like, too, with this being at such a low rye, but all of the rest of it being a malted product, you get a more uh, a different experience of a rye finish note that you don't get with a rye product that has corn in it or something that's kind of masking the ending note um, because I'm getting much more of that rye flavor is it still lingering in my mouth after I've already like taken a sip and put the glass to the side? Because I think that it it has to do with the fact that there's so much malted barley in it and there's no other flavoring grain or any corn in there. I think this is fantastic. And obviously Addie's will have this in or we'll be having this in once this goes live, but do we know a price on this at all? Not yet. Not yet. Th- this is a fantastic product. I I think that this is probably it's a different rye than what I've had before. And I mean, that has to do with the malted barley. Yeah. We wanted to, we wanted something different with mm-hmm. this. You know, we have our kind of traditional rise in our Rossville union line as well. We have a, a 94 proof Rossville union that is um, five and six year old, just like the 94 proof Remus. And that's a blend of our 95% rye, 5% malted barley and our 51% rye, 45 corn, 4% malted barley, kind of those two bigger mash mm-hmm. bills we do. And it's um, it's it's 
the majority of it is that 95.5, but we put quite a bit of that, that 45 corn in there as well to make it, it's kind of our approachable rye. You know, it's got some of that corn sweetness in it. It's a good transition for bourbon drinkers, but it's complex enough for rye drinkers too. And then we have our barrel proof, which the barrels I pick for that are all at least seven years old. And that's that big minty dilly, Mm. like rye drinkers, rye. It's that's what I'm reaching for when I go home in the, in the morning or in the afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) I will say though, this isn't an unapproachable rye at all. Like you said Mm. that, that corn added to it makes it a little bit more approachable. This is extremely approachable. You're not getting a lot of rye burn from this at all. No, that's that malted barley. Right. It just kind of, yeah, it, it, it just softens it up a little bit, makes it a little more kind of grassy, cereally, chocolatey. Sure. Mm-hmm. This is fantastic. I appreciate this. Thanks. I don't want to keep drinking so much. You know, we got to drive home after this, but um, obviously we have to try these other ones, though. So... We, we went from the straight bourbon that is kind of your entry-level main steak. That's our bourbon product. This rye is a little bit more intricate. Like, it's still approachable for individuals. What what else do we have here? We have the, the Gatsby, um, the six-year, and the repeal. So kind of tell us a little story about the Gatsby aversion and what is this supposed to portray? So the Gatsby's are our 15-year. It's our, kind of our top-end product. It's those same two bourbon mash bills that are in our everyday 94 proof Remus, but the barrels I pick for this are going to be all at least 15 years old. So it's it's difficult to blend because we're doing all that work before mm-hmm. we're actually blending it, right? We're trying to pick out those barrels that are going to be good at 15 years old because I'd say a high percentage of our barrels are not going to be good at 15 years old. They're sure. going to be over oak. They're going to be kind of that bitter tannic, you know. So we got to pick out what's going to be good, what's going to keep getting better to that age. Sure. Um, and then the reason we do kind of the Gatsby Reserve and the Art Deco packaging is because of George Remus, the person. So um, George Remus was a bootlegger during Prohibition. He grew up in Chicago, and his uncle owned a pharmacy. And from a very young age, he worked at the pharmacy. By the time he was 18 years old, he'd put himself through pharmacy school and purchased the pharmacy from his uncle. And you know, he, uh, he was very ambitious. He got bored being a teenager pharmacist, so he decided to go to law school as well or put himself through law school. By the time he was 21 years old, he had put himself through law school and passed the bar. So he was a pharmacist Jeez. and an attorney by 21. And <laughs> What? <laughs> yeah, I was still, like, in my parents' basement. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, so he, yeah, he started um, representing bootleggers early on in Prohibition as, as an attorney, and he thought, these guys are just kind of dumb hillbillies, you know. I could, they're making a ton of money, but I could do this better. Sure. So he moved down to Cincinnati, just uh, close by to our distillery. And he started buying up distilleries and buying up pharmacies. And what he would do is he'd get medicinal permits to pull whiskey out of the warehouses of his distilleries. And then he would sell that under medicinal license at his pharmacies. Sure. But, um, he realized that there was a, a lot bigger market to capitalize on. So he started pulling whiskey out of the warehouses under medicinal permits. And then as those trucks would leave his warehouses, he would have his own guys rob his own guys and uh, <laughs> take that whiskey out to a farm outside of Cincinnati. They called Death Valley Farm. And bootleggers from all over the country would come pick up the whiskey there. He was the biggest volume bootlegger um, during Prohibition. 
So then he would get more permits to pull more whiskey out because his whiskey was stolen from him. Sure. And um, and yeah, he, he quickly became very, very wealthy. And he liked to show off that wealth. He was very flashy with his wealth. Uh, they would write about his extravagant parties in the national news. Uh, there was one specific party they wrote about in the Cincinnati Enquirer where every man in attendance had a diamond stick pin uh, by their placemat at dinner. And uh, the women were looking around like, what do we get? And the servants came around with little wood boxes, and every woman in attendance had keys to a new car in a little wood box. And the servants pulled the cars up the driveway. Um, And he was just known for these super extravagant parties. And the legend is that he met F. Scott Fitzgerald in the basement of the Sealbach Hotel, they became kind of drinking buddies, and it's it's very likely that he was the inspiration for Jay Gatsby of The Great Gatsby. That's why we have our Gatsby Reserve. That's sweet. And he, what a cool story. And he ties into our distillery specifically because he, he owned the Squibb Distillery during Prohibition, and it was actually barrels from the Squibb Distillery that eventually got him caught and locked up. That's an amazing story. I'm surprised I haven't heard that before. Yeah, it, it is a really, uh, really interesting story. He was a very interesting character during Prohibition, and you know he's he's local to us. He owned our distillery, so it's a interesting connection and piece of history. So obviously, that story has to be on a fifteen year old product. Yeah, <laughs> that's so cool. So when you're going through, we talked about this a little bit earlier. When you're tasting juice from the barrel, and you're saying it's not quite ready yet. I want to save this for an older product, maybe this Gatsby. But at that point, when it's five years or six years old, you don't necessarily know if it's going to be good in 15. So are you tasting it every year to see how it's evolving, or are you just putting it in a corner and saying this will be good at 15 years? No, we we do barrel surveys every year. Okay. So our master blender and his team will do those barrel surveys every year, and then they'll keep me in the loop, um, you know, I work really closely with our master blender for the blending of our our own brands, the Remus and the mm-hmm. Rosville. Um, so he keeps a good eye on all that. Um, you know, I'll taste along with him. You know, I won't do the full barrel survey with him because I have to do other things <laughs> as well. But um, but no, we we keep a good eye on on how everything's maturing. So this one says cask cask strength too. What what is it coming out at? Is ninety eight point one proof. Okay, so. A lot of people see that, and they're like, how is it cast strength at 98.1? Um, so our barrel entry proof is a little bit lower than most. Uh, we do 120, so we're not the lowest out there, mm-hmm. but you know, a lot of people are 124.99. Sure. Um, so our cast, our entry proof is a little lower, and then our distillery sits right where Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana meet, and it's in the Ohio River Valley, and it's right where, it's right where Tanner's Creek, the little creek, empties into the Ohio. And they sit down low in that riverbed, and it's just very humid. Mm. And the partial pressure of water in the air being higher slows down the evaporation rate of water. So our barrels tend to go down and proof as they age. That's fascinating because normally it's the other way around. Yeah, and you know we're—I mean—we could throw a rock from our distillery and be in Kentucky, where a lot of the proofs skyrocket. It's just that little microclimate we sit in in the riverbed. Um, it's interesting. We actually have a, a levee system that is around the town of Lawrenceburg and Greendale, but it's really almost exclusively around the distillery. And the the levee walls are actually, the, the rickhouses are part of the levee walls. It's actually oh, built cool. into the creek. So it's just very humid there. And 
you know, you get that uh, proof typically goes down. But we we do see um, some locations uh, go up. We also have offsite warehousing. Mm. So we have a couple locations. Uh, we have a location in Indiana as well as in Kentucky. So the profile and the proof will be a little different out of those rick houses, which gives us more options to blend with. That's fascinating. The, the whole... The whole difference in climate, and again, we talked about this a little earlier, when people don't necessarily understand the chemical makeup that that makes up whiskey, also the barometric pressure and the humidity and all that stuff changes so much in the product. I never would have thought that it can decrease what's in the cask by that much for a 15-year-old product. That, that's pretty sweet. So when... So you're not diluting that, obviously. When you dilute the 94 and um, the 100, obviously 100 is bottled and bond, so you have to dilute it to that. But when you're diluting it to the 47, are you using, like, what is your diluting process for that? Um, I mean, it's just typical. We use, uh, we're going to use demineralized water. And uh, we don't do, like, the slow proofing or sure. anything like that. It's just going to be, you know, proofing down with demineralized water to hit that bottling proof. Are you using the same casks for all this stuff too? For the most part, kind of. For yeah. the most part, our standard is um, is four char staves with two char heads, and we predominantly work with ISC and Speyside. But um, over the years, you know, if if I go and look at our inventory, we have dozens of different coopers barrels sure. in inventory we've uh we played around with lower chars you know with heavy toes with you know longer aged uh, longer season staves we've done pretty much everything sure. o- over the years but but most of the whiskey that's going to go into all these was uh, going to be four char staves with two char heads so that four and two is that common that you have two different char levels on the different parts of the barrel I actually don't know the answer to yeah. that. Uh, I don't know what all the other distilleries do specifically. Yeah. Um, that's been the way we've been doing it at our distillery for a very long time, and and that kind of gives us the profile we like. Um, I'm not sure. I know what a couple of the other bigger guys do, but I, I don't know uh, what everyone does. I in this it could be common, but that's the first time that I've heard using two different chars in the same barrel. So what what makes the the head so much different that you're using a different char on that? I think it just um, it just gives us that profile we're sure. looking for. So so in general, the lower the char, uh, the more flavor you're going to pick up early on. Um, the more color you're going to pick up overall. So a lot of people think like the cover. The, sorry, the color comes from the char, mm-hmm. but the char really acts like a charcoal filter. Mm-hmm. Like your Brita water filter doesn't add color, right? I hope not. That'd be weird. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so the, actually the higher char level, the, the less color it imparts. Um, so, so that char really helps kind of filter out any off notes. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then with those heads being lower char, it helps kind of pick up some of that color and some of that flavor a little quicker than you would if the whole thing was four char. That, that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that you could do that. So you just talk to ISC and you're like, hey, I want this? Yeah, I mean, we, we use a lot of different Coopers, but um, but yeah, we that's, that's pretty what cool. we specify when we're purchasing barrels. Can I try a little bit of that one? Yeah, absolutely. 
because I 15 year. <clears throat> so from we, we talked about what your favorite mash bill is, and you said that you like rye. Do you have a specific proof point that you like too that you normally gravitate towards? I typically like cast strength. Okay. And I think there's a lot of kind of misinformation in the community about proof. You know, um, kind of the the hot thing is like high proof and the higher the better, right? Mm -hmm. So like people like those hazmat bottles. Um, but I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding that, that cast strength is cast strength. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, 130 proof is not more flavorful than 106 proof if they're both cast strength. Sure. Like you're getting the full flavor. You're not diluting with any water. And the ethanol is not giving you flavor. You know, I could take 193 proof off of our rectifiers and, and add it to this bottle to make it very high proof, and it would be very unflavorful, mm -hmm. right? Because that 193 proof has no flavor. Sure. Um, so I think there it's kind of this weird misconception um, that that higher proof is better when really people just want cast strength. They want something that hasn't been watered down at yeah. all. Um, and it's I don't know. I think I think it's interesting. Um, you know, th there will be changes at different proofs in the barrel. So as that barrel spends more time at a higher proof maybe it will extract more alcohol solubles mm. from the barrel than water solubles and vice versa. But, but really, um, I don't, I just, I kind of don't understand this, this trend of like the hazmats and stuff. I don't, I'm not, I don't fully understand it. I feel like it has to do a lot with like guys being like, yeah, I can handle it. It's like, come yeah. on. It, it's, it's yeah. not that because even when you're, you're drinking a 94 proof, you're, tasting a product from an expert that feels like adding this amount of water makes this whiskey taste the best. So I remember I was talking to this guy and he's like, I don't drink anything under 110. It's like, all right, guy, chill out because there's some really good whiskeys that are 90 proof that are hundred proof. And yeah, I'm right there with you. And again, I, I love that you're having this open conversation around corn tasting the same and the proof not necessarily mattering. Like it does matter for some aspects of it, but there's a lot of good whiskey throughout the whole gamut from 80 all the way up to, I think I saw 150 once. It's the proof doesn't necessarily matter. It's just, that's how it's meant to be tasted. That's all. Yeah. And, and you don't really see all the time. I mean, the proofs are, are intentional and yes, they're made by experts. Um, you know, the blenders in our business do a phenomenal job. You know, our master blender, Sam Schmelzer does an incredible job. I love working with him on this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so it is intentional, but also like the specific proof too, you have no idea how much water was added. Sure. So like, you know, if, uh, if our average barrels coming out were at 135 proof and it was 94 proof, uh, at bottling, that would be a much different experience than, you know, if they started at 105 and went to 94, sure. right? So that the absolute proof really isn't important unless you're just uh, looking to get drunk. Yeah, right. <laughs> and there's the community. You said the community of distillers that you've interacted with are very like nice people. That oh, you, yeah. you haven't really experienced that. So 
I think there's also a misnomer of people thinking that if it's 80, that's a distillery that is trying to get the most bang for their buck and add as much water to it as possible to get the most yield of the product. But I don't really see that existing within the industry either, where distilleries are purposely trying to get as much for as much yield from their barrels for like by making their product taste worse by making it 80 proof like that doesn't exist I don't feel like yeah I would say that that probably exists a little bit in the very um the very value bourbons right like the the really cheap bourbons um they're they're at that lower proof intentionally to stretch the cases out I think and and because maybe their customer likes that kind of lighter flow flavor profile, mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, any anything that's uh, in a glass bottle is is probably intentionally there, right? Sure. Like it's we're not going to um, you know we're not gonna get a few more cases and 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 um, risk our flavor profile. Sure. It doesn't make any sense for because these are really luxury items at this point, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and you know the margins are are good. They're where they're at. We don't need to stretch a couple cases out. That's kind of not what we would do. Sure. So this fifteen Gatsby is the same mash bill as this, just older, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. This is very. If I if you were to put both those in front of me, I would obviously probably gravitate more towards that fifteen. But this is fantastic coming out. I think now I'm getting more of that floral. This is a good product. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, our older bourbons kind of pick up like this, like cherry cola type of flavor. Mm. Um, you know, this one's very heavy on the oak, where this is going to be a little more of that cherry cola. Um, some people call it a medicinal cherry or sure. a cherry cola, but they're cough syrup. Yeah, our yeah. older bourbons pick up this kind of unique cherry flavor, and this one, um, I think, has a good amount of it. And then it's it's really heavy on the oak, kind of those like darker barrel mm-hmm. notes like the leather kind of tobacco flavors is what we're typically going for with this with this too i'm getting a little bit more of a <clears throat> like a coagulation in the back of my mouth again mm-hmm. it's all staying within the mouth which is an amazing experience but you're getting more of that salivation as it like the back of your tongue yeah i think that that those oak tannins kind of bring out that salivation these are like you know I love this whiskey and it you like it couldn't be another year old. Like mm-hmm. it, those tannins are getting so strong, they're right on the border of starting to turn bitter, but sure. they haven't yet and that I think that kind of makes you salivate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. We're just about like at an hour. Do you still have time? Are you still okay? Yeah, we're still good. Okay. All right. Yeah, I mean this is so far this is probably my favorite, which is weird because we talked about I like the rye a lot. But this I feel like the mouthfeel the entire experience is definitely justifying that 15 year old age on that because this is just a very this is a great experience for this product thank you we appreciate that we put a lot of work into it so we appreciate Mm. it and i mean i love the gatsby the the whole vibe of that and the other one is just it's a really cool it's a, it's a cool like you can even turn this once you're done with it into a like a water decanter like this is a, a cool product just to have on your shelf. We we actually talked to somebody like an hour ago that said the exact same. Oh thing. really? Yeah, they said I, I like to turn some of my bottles into decanters, and this would be a really cool decanter. It's sweet. It's really <laughs> cool. Yeah. 
So this next one is a highest rise straight bourbon whiskey. And all these products will eventually be at Addie's at some point. Is that the goal for these? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And this one will be be here in like a month. So this okay. should be here, you know, potentially by the time this airs. So the highest rye bourbon, is that the same that you were talking about a little earlier with the 36 rye? Is that what you're, no? Different? No. Okay. So that, that 21% rye and 36% rye, those were Seagram's recipes we've been doing for ages and ages. Gotcha. This is a brand new recipe. So this recipe, um, you know, is exclusive right now to this bottle. Um, we did do a couple of our single barrel picks with this recipe, but other than that, we haven't released this recipe anywhere. So this is 51 corn, 39 rye, 10% malted rye. So we, you know, we kind of really pioneered high rye bourbon. That that style was kind of unique to mm-hmm. us for a long time. And so when we were looking at creating a new bourbon recipe, we wanted to push that rye influence to the max. And um, and it's the first bourbon recipe we've done with malted rye too, which adds a little unique character. So um, we've been kind of, this is, I'm really excited about this one. Uh, me and our master blender have been kind of monitoring these barrels over the last six years. And we've thought this year was finally the year to break it out. Um, you know, we tasted it at quite a few different proofs. We knew we wanted it to be higher. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's kind of the trend. Um, so we tasted it. I think we started at like 103, went to about 112. And we settled in at that 109. And what I love about this mash bill is that it's not what you think it's going to be. Sure. So you hear that 49% rye bourbon, like the, the most rye you can have in mm-hmm. a bourbon. And you think like that rye is really going to hit you in the face. Like it's almost going to be like a boar rye. And, um, and it, that at the front of the palate, it's like all brown sugar and sweetness, which like doesn't even really make sense. Sure. But then that rye really like starts to slowly creep in on the back of the palate and it almost turns into like a ginger snap cookie type of flavor. Um, I I couldn't be more happy with the way these turned out. I don't know if it's just because you told me that, but... This is the sweetest, highest rye bourbon on the front that I've tasted in a very long time. It, it doesn't even feel like there's rye in it until halfway through, and you're like, okay, there it is. It's yeah. again, it's in the back of your tongue where you're starting to get a little bit of that like prickliness, um, where that rye is starting to show through. But the the way that it presents itself on the front of your tongue is so like well-rounded where there's no peaks and valleys. It's just kind of this like sweetness that you're tasting and you're like, oh, okay, whoa, there you go. That's a really cool, yeah, really it, cool product. Yeah, it's almost in the front, it, it's like kind of, like I said, brown sugar, mm-hmm. and it's almost kind of like syrupy, yeah. like maple syrupy, and then that rice spice just kind of comes in softly at first, and by the end you're like, yeah, it's there. Yeah. <laughs> it, it leaves like this weird, not weird, but like this interesting coating on your tongue which I don't know if it's an actual coating or if it's just a um, like a sweet experience that your back, your tongue is making you feel like it's a coating because it just went over your tongue so quickly. Yeah. And, and we also, um, sorry, Jeff, what's the, what's going to be the price on this one? So, so this is going to be $50 on the shelf. So a, a six year age stated product uh, from our distillery 
in a mash at high proof at 109 proof in a mash bill that people haven't experienced from us before at $50. You know, I, I fought uh, pretty hard to keep that price low on this. And I think it's, it's going to really, um, you know, we've already gotten a lot of good feedback on it. Yeah. It's been going uh, really well so far, but I think the, the whiskey community is really going to like this, especially at that price point. Yeah, for sure. So when you're, when you're going into liquor stores and you're trying to sell the Remus brand, are you trying to, like, are you going in saying that this is like an MGP family product or are you like, what is your sales pitch for the Remus brand and trying to differentiate it from other MGP source products on the market? Yeah. I mean, that's, we lead with that, right? We're proud of who we are. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I think our reputation has really grown over you know, the last 10 years, I've been at the distillery about 10 years. You know, when I first started, people that were buying our whiskeys weren't necessarily being really transparent mm -hmm. about it. And it was kind of like the the dirty secret. But then, you know, over the years, people have become more and more transparent about it. Our reputation for making incredible whiskeys has really grown. So now um, it's almost like front and center for some of our customers marketing. They're like, sure. we got these MGP barrels, you know, they're going to be good. Come get them, right? So when I'm talking to... Um, to retailers and consumers about our products, you know, I really want them to understand. It's more educating them about like sometimes they think like Remus and Rossville are NDPs, like um, and that they're sourcing from MGP. I'm like, no, we are MGP. Right. Like, we are MGP, and this is what we think our best foot forward is. Like, like these are our brands. We're doing really, you know smaller limited runs that were being incredibly picky about what mm -hmm. we put into these. This is like the best of what MGP has to offer. That's really cool because yeah, I mean, going back to what we talked about earlier with MGP, MGP being so prevalent in the market that having product that is coming directly from MGP itself is I think what people have been looking for for a while because there's all these brands that they've tried. We're not going to name any names, but all these brands that they've tried that are coming from Indiana, that are coming from MGP. And there there comes a point where it's like, okay, when are, what am I actually getting? Am I getting MGP product? Am I getting their version of MGP? And I think that this is very, very a, a good value, but also something that everybody has to try to understand. This is MGP at its core, which is a great experience that, people need to try. Yeah, this this is what MGP thinks MGP right. should be. <laughs> That's really sweet. But it's just now getting people to understand that Remit, like the brand name is this mm -hmm. so that's like what other marketing is there available is there social media is there like how are you getting the message across? Yeah, we have we have kind of a like a loyalty club the King Circle we're on Facebook as Remus Bourbon as Ross and Squib as Rossville Union we have a uh, social media on Facebook and Instagram for both of those. Mm -hmm. We have websites for Ross and Squibb, for Remus, for Rossville. Um, and then we're putting a lot of a lot of marketing behind these brands. We just had our first commercial for Remus oh, cool. earlier this year with the Indianapolis 500. It was like uh, Ameri Indiana's oldest race meets in Indiana's oldest distillery. Nice. It was kind of a cool partnership. Um, you know, we're... We're also doing some stuff, uh, you know, out in the community. Um, we're partnering with Water Boys, which uh, Chris Long, it's his foundation. Mm. And we're doing, we actually just uh, completed a well 
in Africa for a community that didn't have clean drinking water. You know, uh, water is such an important part of making whiskey. You know, we sit, we're very lucky, we sit on top of the Great Miami River Buried Valley Aquifer, and it's a really great source of sand and limestone filtered water. The mineral content in it is very good for yeast health and fermentation. Uh, there's some other big brewing and distilling um, facilities on on top of that aquifer. Uh, we pull about 11 million ga- or sorry, about 8 million gallons of water out of the ground every day. We don't touch the water table. We're very every lucky. Day? Yeah, every day. Wow. So, uh, so we wanted to to give you know clean, high quality water to a community that that didn't have it. So, we've been doing some stuff like that, which is is really exciting. You know, makes us feel good about what we're doing. Sure. Um, and yeah, we're. We're trying to uh, to get these brands out out in the market to everybody. Absolutely. So the last thing that I want to touch on on this highest rye is this is the first one that you've introduced malted rye, at least for this conversation. What is it like making whiskey with malted rye instead of malted barley? Because that, that whole enzyme process with the B amylase, is that what it is, that is in the malted barley is less than or is more than in the malted rye, right? So that you have a different chemical compound of the malted rye. So can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between the two? Yeah, so the enzymatic activity in malted rye is going to be less than than malted barley. So we, we call it the, the diastatic power. Basically, that's just a, a fancy word for the ability of that enzymes in that malted grain to reduce starches to fermentable sugars. And um, so you're going to need a little bit more of that malted rye um, but really with the, with the malted uh, grains, you're also introducing different flavors. And the, the cocktail of enzymes, the whole, um, you know, there's a wide array of enzymes in malted grains. Um, and that, that's going to be slightly different in the malted rye than the malted barley. So you're going to break down different parts of the grain that maybe you're not breaking down uh, with, you know, with malted barley sure. or with malted rye, vice versa. So it's a it's a different experience. It's just a different uh, flavor profile with the malted rye, but you typically are going to need more of it for conversion. Does it does it translate like ten malted rye is the same as five malted barley, or is it not that simple? Um, it's not quite that simple, um, just because you know we we get that diastatic power uh, when we bring in the malted grain. That's part of the you know the certificate of analysis, mm-hmm. but um, but that's not real constant, like the changes from batch to batch from, you know, so it's not like malted rye is always this sure. and malted barley is always this. Um, so it, it changes, but it's it's significantly mm-hmm. more higher diastatic power with malted barley, especially the malted barley we're bringing in, the sure. distiller's malt, um, which is a blend of two row and six row, but it's a uh, very high diastatic power. Are you permitted to add like additional enzyme outside of the malted grains? Oh yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, I would say most distilleries do, um, and we're included in that. It allows us to control the process much better. Sure. Um, so really, I think at this point, most distilleries are using those malted grains for flavor development. Oh, okay. Um, for conversion, we're we're using you know uh, bacterial enzymes. Um, so so you really with with malted grains you you can't control the degree of polymerization of those starches um, like you might want to during the cooking process. Sure. So 
like, you know, you often, especially with heavy rye mash bills, you're going to need to break that viscosity early on in the cooking process. So you're going to need to add, you know, some rheology modifying enzymes or some alpha amylase, something to break that, that uh, viscosity early in the process. But then when you expose it to higher temperatures, uh, gelatinization temperatures of the starches and corn, especially, um, if you've created sugars at that part of the process, you're going to degrade those sugars. You're going to get some kind of burnt off flavors from that. So you don't really want to add malt early in the process, but you need to break that viscosity somehow, right? Um, And then, you know, during fermentation, um, if you're using some kind of glucoamylase, you can really control the amount of sugar available to your yeast all throughout fermentation because you don't want want too much sugar in the beginning. You know, you don't want to osmotically stress the yeast. um, And you want, you know, we call it SSF, simultaneous uh, saccharification. Or, and fermentation, um, and uh, you, it's you're going to get a lot higher level of consistency uh, using those those um, bacterial enzymes sure. or commercial enzymes. So, I I'm in love with the nerdy stuff. Like this is what gets me going. Is this conversation right now with the, the whole chemical compounds and everything? I'm not traditionally educated in, in like chemical engineering like you are. But what is the benefit of doing study like that coming into the distillery industry, having that chemical engineering back, chemical engineering, right? You said, mm-hmm. yeah. What is, what is the benefit of going, if there is any, having that background coming into the distillery industry or just learning basically on the job? So I think that education helps you understand what's going on in the distillery at a little deeper level. Okay. Um, you know, with all the heat transfer that's going on, um, you know, the biological, and chemical reactions that are going on. Having that education helps you understand that at a little deeper level instead of just at like a um, experiential level, I guess. Like, you know, you, you know, we experience things and we take observations, but you know, you really need that science behind it to really understand why. Sure. Um, But also I think the biggest thing is just, you know, I think the engineering and the science background helps because you have to be very scientific, very thorough in everything you do with distilling because you don't understand fully the result of a change you make for years down the road, right? right? We, you know, we have our standards of what we want our whiskeys to taste like when they go into the barrel, but we don't fully understand a change until that whiskey comes out of the barrel, mm-hmm. right? So, any kind of change you make, you want to make small changes, you want to collect a lot of data, you want to be very scientific in any kind of change you're making. And I think that education kind of helps um, build that mindset before you you get into it. Sure. All right, let's, uh, can we try this last one? And then I want to ask you a couple more questions around the barrel size and everything like that. Because yeah. the, <clears throat> the, the other thing that we haven't really talked about is the barrels. I mean, we talked about the charring on the barrels, but do you do any experimental distilling or aging with different sizes and not getting into the 52, but getting into lower capacity barrels and all? So we do not. Um, At our volumes, it wouldn't make much sense for us to be doing anything in smaller barrels. And in my experience, this is being anecdotal, like I told you we shouldn't be, um, in my experience, uh, anecdotally, 
most of the whiskeys I've tried in smaller barrels have not been well balanced to me. And maybe that's just because we're conditioned to think of that balance as a 53-gallon barrel. But, you know, there's a lot we don't know about what happens in the barrel. Um, but, you know, we do know there's there's basically, you know, three different things going on. You have your, your oxidation reactions, your organic acids turning into esters, giving you those fruity notes. Um, basically, you know, when it gets cold, that liquid will absorb more oxygen than when it heats back up those oxidative reactions will, will occur. Um, and you have your extraction. So you're, you're extracting solubles out of the barrel. And then you have kind of your, um, your, uh, your filter filtration, you know, the charcoal is going to filter out some, some off flavors Mm -hmm. and things. And in a smaller barrel, you're going to have a different volume to surface area ratio. You're going to have you know, potentially more extraction of those soluble compounds out sure. of the wood um, faster, but you're not going to speed up those oxidation reactions. Um, and to me, in my experience, that tends to lend itself towards a balance that I don't personally like. Okay. Um, so I don't have really any interest in experimenting with the smaller barrels. So it's not not something we've done. Sure. And And maybe we're just snobs and traditionalists but but that's a uh, that's how i feel right now so <laughs> well i mean kind of to that point around experimenting with that do you do you guys even have time to make experimental distillate at all or is it kind of trying to stick with what's been working like how much time do you actually have to experiment yeah so we we do experiment and um like i said we have to be really careful with our experimentation, really scientific about it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, some of the smaller distilleries can maybe try some like crazier things. Right. Um, but you know, a small run for us is maybe what a craft distillery makes in a year. So, um, so it's hard for us to take big risks, Mm -hmm. right? Like we, we do a lot of experimentation. Um, but it, it better be good or uh, somebody else might be talking to you next year. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's awesome. So we just poured this last one, the Remus Repeal Reserve. Can you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah. So the Remus Repeal Reserve is probably my favorite part about my job because it's our kind of one time a year where I get to get together with our master blender and we get to pick out, you know, really whatever we want out of the rickhouses. So, um, you know, it's, it's going to be unique every year. We're not trying to hit a flavor profile every time like we are with the 94 proof. We're going to, we want it to be different every mm-hmm. year. We want it to be unique every year. Uh, and we really just kind of get free reign of the Rick houses. Um, this year we did nine, 10 and 16 year old bourbons uh, for it. You can kind of read those percentages and mash bills. Uh, they're very small at the bottom of the barrel or bottle. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, unique every year and it's a lot of fun so we you know it kind of blew up with series five in 2021 Uh, guys like fred minnick had it in their top five bourbons of 2021 Uh, we won a lot of awards in for series six uh, we kind of continued that momentum Um, we got second in the ascot awards that was a big deal for us Um, and then series seven we just released but we're Really excited about it. Really proud of how this turned out. Uh, I've done a lot of blind tastings with people uh, with seven and some of the previous releases, and it's performed very favorably mm-hmm. in the blind tastings. Um, 
you know, I blind them myself a lot, the whole vertical, and I don't pick the same one every time. You know, they, uh, yeah, a lot of the whiskey YouTubers and influencers, it's fun when they do the blinds and pick them out because they're a lot of times they're not like what they think, right? Sure. Like they'll, you know, they'll give one a really good review and one like an okay review and then they'll blind them and they'll pick the one that they gave the okay <laughs> review, their favorite. It's kind of funny to watch. But. This is really cool. <clears throat> so it's 100 proof, 50%. Um, there's a, there's basically five of them that you're bringing into this bottle. Yeah. It was five different years in mash bills sure. combinations. Mm-hmm. Three of the 21 Ryan, two of the 36. Yep. So the, does that stay constant or that's even changing? No, we've had years where we only picked two different years in mash bills. Um, the last couple of years it has been five. Um, but that, that's just kind of the way it turned out it wasn't really intentional at all sure so this particular when you're bottling this is this a distinct thing that you're doing because like with the other blends that you have this type of blend could be in a different bottle right like but this is just the one that you're kind of pulling out to saying this we want to separate from the other line yeah um and this you know this is going to be some of our older Mm -hmm. bourbons typically so right the 16 year yeah you said okay um so yeah, um, it, it, but yes, those mash bills could be in in other things as well. This is really good. You can taste, you can taste a lot of that sixteen. I feel. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> kind of funny. Some some of like the influencers and, and re- reviewers, they're like six percent, two thousand seven. What is that like? Three drops, and um, yeah, they don't they don't understand that 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 six percent, two thousand seven. Um, makes a huge difference mm-hmm. and and really um you know the barrels of that 2007 are gonna be like really heavily tannic because um you know a lot of them are ones that we wouldn't necessarily put into this because they wouldn't perform well on their own sure. but they make an incredible blending stock um so so yeah a lot of people don't understand like they see that and they're like they're trying to trick us it's like no that's just uh that's that's where we wanted the blend to be that it, that 6% makes a big difference. Like, and like kind of going back to our other point, why would you waste a 16-year-old product by trying to trick somebody? Like that doesn't make financial or business sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but you can taste a lot of that, like the, the that deepness. Because with older products, you kind of get, a little, or at least in my opinion, you get more of the um, lasting effect where it just kind of the flavors stay at least the oak and the the more traditional older notes stay in your um your your taste for quite a bit longer and with that i i attribute that and i could be wrong based off of what you've done your research on this but like that six percent i'm attributing it to that lasting note that has been very prevalent ever since i took that first sip like it's just staying there and i attribute that to a, a little bit older of a product yeah, I think that um, you know that may be accurate. Um, I th- I think that older products tend to be a little more complex as a generalization. Mm-hmm. But you know, um, but like I said, every barrel is different. Some barrels are are really honestly going to be best at like four years old. Like sure. that barrel reached its peak at four years old. We uh, in our single barrel program this year, the LESV, the twenty one percent rye. Um, the youngest batch in there was like the standout. Like it was, 
you know, four and a half year old, 21% rye. And it was just incredible. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I, I don't want that whiskey to age much longer. Right. Cause it's so good right now. Um, but yeah, though, typically the older bourbons are going to add some complexity. Some of those lingering notes. I think mm -hmm. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. So to kind of round out the conversation, I know that we talked a little bit about the smaller barrels, you not necessarily finding a lot of value in doing that. Are there any other bourbon or whiskey trends that you feel aren't valuable or don't provide from your perspective the return on the investment, I guess, to say? Um, kind of putting you on the spot there. You, you don't necessarily yeah, have to no, call out um, I don't know that I see... I definitely see some that aren't valuable, but, um, but I think some of the ones that I do think are valuable are, I think... That right now there's a really good trend going in the industry um, where distillers are getting more involved in the agriculture mm, side of it. Sure. So like the winemakers are so far ahead of what we've been doing as distillers in terms of, you know, understanding the different varietals of the grapes, the different growing conditions, the regions. Terroir. The, yeah. yeah. Um, then distillers. And I think it's exciting to see the distilling world start to get into that. I think that's, um, you know, one of the things that really excites me in my job right now, um, really understanding more of that agricultural connection, you know, how, you know, frost seeding crops affects the flavor profile, sure. how, you know, how different regions and different rye varieties uh, affect the flavor profile. I think that's one of the exciting trends in bourbon. I won't comment on the ones I don't think are worth it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So that's an interesting, that's an interesting topic because I think you're starting to see that now with the regionalization of whiskey, like New York having their own category now, the Empire Rye. From somebody that is MGP, do you see the regionalization of different whiskey products beneficial to the whiskey industry, or do you feel like it, it it's taking too much away? I mean, I guess you kind of answered that question, but, like, what are your thoughts on, like, Texas potentially being the next state that has their own, like, Texas whiskey or Alabama or Washington, like that type of conversation? No, I think all of that is great. Um, you know, I'd much rather see that. I like it when... Um, other distilleries and newer distilleries really like, you know, make their distillery their own. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen distilleries like copy other distilleries, mash bills and stuff. Um, you know, specifically our mash bills a lot. And I'm like, you could make any mash bill you wanted. Right. Why would you want to do something that's already been done? So I think, no, it's great when, um, you know, they're making it regional because every distillery is going to be different, mm -hmm. you know? you're never going to be able to create the whiskey we make. We're never going to be able to cre recreate the whiskey another distillery makes. You know, Seagram's did a lot of research back on in the day on that. They had a, a whole team of PhDs working at our distillery back in the day, and they were trying to recreate the rye whiskey that we make at one of their other facilities. Mm. And they went as far as trucking in the water and the grain, and there was being distilled on basically the same equipment because it was all designed by Seagram Central, Under Central Engineering. Um, and what they kind of came to the conclusion of is that, you know, every, every little, you know, place of a distillery is going to have a slightly different, you know, we have slightly different bacteria in the air, slightly different wild yeast. Mm -hmm. And all of that is going to create a unique profile that you just, each distillery is different. You can't recreate 
something else somewhere sure. else, right? right? Every the location is truly important. It is that terroir, you know. Um, and uh, and it's great when other distilleries embrace that, embrace their regionality. You know, I think it's great when they're you know sourcing grains for locally. Um, you know, for us, we we do it a little more scientifically, and we're looking for a specific flavor profile. But um, but we do do some stuff with small farmers too. Um, you know, some experimental things. Sure. This is awesome. I mean, we're, we could probably talk for quite a bit longer, but I want to be respectful for your time. And I want to like, I just want to have people understand Remus as a whole. So we talked a little bit about the potential single malt discussion coming on (laughs) in in some foreseeable future. Is there anything else that people can be looking forward to from the Remus or the Rossville brand that you want to point out or if you don't want to point it out right now, where can people be in tune for these announcements if they do happen? Um, yeah, on our social media, on Facebook, follow Remus Bourbon, Rossville Union, Rossville Squibb, join the King Circle. Um, no, we uh, we don't have anything specifically we want to talk about at this sure. moment, but we do have some really cool innovation coming for the, the following years, and we've... Uh, we put down some whiskey, you know, that's really cool that we don't even know what that innovation is going to look like uh, in the future. We just have uh, some cool whiskey to lay down and, you know, maybe we'll turn it into some of our own brands um, in the future. Yeah. Love that. So everybody, go give them a follow on their social media. If you see the Remus brand in store, go pick it up because that's what MGP wants MGP to taste like. Uh, go check it out. All these products that we had today were absolutely fantastic. Is there a like quantity of all the different products that you offer? Like we have five in front of us. What are we talking total for Remus in Rossville? So this is the whole Remus portfolio okay. as it stands today. Um, this, the Rossville portfolio, it has our Rossville bottled and bond, which is a seven year. And, and that's my personal favorite of the whole lineup. Uh, and then, or sorry, I said a Rossville bottom bond, Rossville barrel proof, okay. uh, and that's seven year, and that's my personal favorite. And then we also have our Rossville ninety four proof as well. Okay. So, but that's the whole lineup uh, right now. And then we also, you know, as a as a whole company, you know, we have a lot more with sure. our friends from Luxco uh, and our Kentucky distilleries. But love that. Thank you everybody for joining. Go check them out. Ian, this has been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. This has been awesome. All these products are fantastic. They all have a different experience to it, but uh, I think I'm going Gatsby. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, the Gatsby's incredible. Um, it's one of my favorites as yeah. well. I, and it's always fun when people come over. They're like, you know, they know it's special when you break out that bottle. Sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, everybody. Cheers. Thank you. Yeah, cheers. Thank you. Credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards.
cards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.